if you awaken from this illusion and you understand that black implies white self implies other life implies death you can feel yourself not as a stranger in the world not as something here on probation not as something that has arrived here by fluke but you can begin to feel your own existence as absolutely fundamental what you are basically deep deep down far far in is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself podcast episode number two thank you so much for joining me here today where we're going to be discussing some very important topics today it's just going to be me and we're going to be discussing on today's episode the idea that there is an intrinsic relationship between people money nature and god and this is the idea that the metal of gold actually links all of these things together it links together people money nature and god so we're going to be going through the history of gold and we're going to be talking about it from a spiritual and divine perspective. So this is going to go, well, it's going to go many places, but I think you're going to find a lot of value in this one. And hopefully this will be a primer so that in the future, if anybody comes to the podcast, say in six months time, a year's time, and wants to get a really good grasp of why gold is a divine metal, because that's what I've titled today's episode as gold the divine metal if people want to really understand that this episode will be a really good starting point so that's the aim of today's show i hope by the end of it you come away with a very rich and deep understanding of the metal gold beyond just how you already frame it because most people understand it as being rare as having special properties that make it very useful as a form of money however in the west we have become completely detached from the true spiritual significance of gold and you could argue that we've become completely detached spiritually from all things of spiritual significance you know this is something that has been happening over the past 100 years this idea that they're trying to rip us from a world of meaning and put us into a world of meaninglessness so i'm hoping you come away from today's show with a completely new appreciation for the metal gold and the next time you purchase a piece of gold and you hold that piece of gold in your hand, within that piece of gold you now see all of this symbolism that I'm going to be explaining to you today. So that's the aim of today's show. Now before we get into that, I just wanted to do a quick primer for the podcast itself. So for those people that are just joining us, thank you for coming across. This will be my new platform and you'll be able to find this podcast every Wednesday at 8pm over on parallelmike.com. The podcast will always have a first part which will be free for anybody to listen to, to download and you can go across to my website where you can listen to it there, you can also download it from there. However, similarly, there will also always be a second part to the show. So the first 30 minutes to one hour is free and part two will be for members only so you can become a member of parallelmike.com and there you'll be able to access the full length 
episodes. So for example, the first episode I did one hour, which I published on my Parallel Systems broadcast channel just to introduce everyone to the new podcast. However, after that, there was a whole one hour and 40 minutes that I published in the members section on my website too. And in part two, we often go much deeper on the topic than we did in part one. However, like I said, there will always be that free part. So make no mistake, this is a podcast that you can listen to every single week if you enjoy it. And if you find value in it and you want to support censorship-free content, if you want to support me producing more content like this, because I would like to eventually maybe do two episodes a week, then you can become a member and that would, of course, help me to do that. Now, in the coming weeks and months, we're going to be having some really exciting and interesting guests. So if you enjoyed the first episode, if you enjoyed this kind of exploration into hidden histories, discussing things that are relating to matters of meaning, so what makes life meaningful, is there a divine nature to life and how do we find that out in our own personal lives, how do we explore that, then I think you're going to love this podcast. Similarly, I'll also be going into some of the conversation topics that I have over on the Parallel Systems broadcast to do with the hidden history of banking and exploring some of these events in history that we maybe haven't been told the truth on. So that's going to be really exciting too because here on the podcast I'll be able to do much deeper dives on that and also get some experts in these separate subject matters onto the show to have those conversations with. So that's the intro for today's show. Like I said, if you have ever owned a piece of gold, if you've ever held a piece of gold, if you've ever worn a pure gold piece of jewellery and found yourself marvelling at its colour, at its luminosity, at the feel and texture of it, well, then I think this show is going to really help you to not just understand why that is, but to really appreciate gold in ways that you have never appreciated it before. So without further ado, let's get to today's show. That is Gold, the Divine Metal. <music> everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast episode number two and today we're going to be talking about this idea that there is an intrinsic relationship between people, money, nature and God and you know I found it really interesting when I was researching today's episode, it was like going down a well from which I could never find the bottom, there's just so much, so much history when it comes to gold and man's relationship with gold and also, of course, man's relationship to God. And we'll talk a lot about this in today's show, the idea that gold is representative of God and how that has been the case throughout many different cultures and civilizations throughout history. So let's get straight to it. Like I said in the introduction, today is just going to be me, although in the future we're going to be having some guest co-hosts and also interviews with some of the brightest and most interesting thinkers out there in the fields of things like hidden histories, astrology, metals, and a whole host of other things as well. Okay, so the format for today's show is I'm going to be going through a list of points, and then I'm going to be talking about them along the way. So I will be reading some quotes, and then following that, we will do some discussion around it if need be. And this will just help us move the podcast along and also to get some of the most important points out because there's so much like I said that I could have gone into here and really today's episode is only going to scratch the surface of this discussion of gold being a divine metal. So we'll do our best to get through as much as we can in today's episode but it's going to be something that we come back to again and again in other discussions too around these topics of spirituality and nature. So let's get to it. Let's start with the first point and we'll take it from there. 
For the past 5,000 years of human history, gold has been regarded as a valuable commodity to be acquired and treasured and to be traded and warred over. Initially, it would have been regarded with little more than curiosity based on its colour, malleability and density. In comparison to other materials, it had no obvious use. However, in the Aegean region and in China from about 3200 BC, following the discovery and use of metallic copper and bronze, gold became prized, probably because of its rarity, luster, resistance to corrosion and comparative ease of working. Many gold artefacts such as jewellery and decorative and religious objects are known from this time. Now, I guess this one is an interesting quote to begin with because there's some things in there that I would probably question myself, but it gives us a good starter as to how we understand gold in terms of modern civilization. So we talk about the past 5,000 years. However, if we go back before that, we don't actually have any information how ancient civilizations, let's say pre-flood, for example, would have understood gold. So if you go back, for example, to the Atlanteans, we don't really have any information, of course, as to how they would have seen gold. And I would argue that gold would have been treasured from the very first time it was found by man. And it was likely that gold existed in many primitive cultures, also going back tens of thousands of years. I think it's absolutely certain that they would have been attracted to gold. They would have seen it as something that was very, very unique because, of course, gold has that luster to it, that shine. It catches the sun. And we'll talk a lot more about gold's relationship to the sun uh, later in today's show. Okay, let's go on to point number two. In the Bible, it is told that ever since Adam's descendants explored the land of Havilah, man has mined and treasured gold. In the past, it has usually been the metal of kings, palaces, priests and temples, including Israel's tabernacle and Solomon's temple. God has destined that the poor and oppressed who become his children through repentance and faith will enjoy pure gold in his heavenly city forever. Now, we're going to be talking an awful lot about gold's interpretation through the Bible and through the biblical creation story in part two of today's show. And I think you're just going to be amazed at how much gold has been linked to not just God in the Christian faith, but also if you go back to Hinduism, for example, it has a similar role, a similar function. And there's just so many different properties of gold that have been used throughout time by all different kinds of mystics and healers. Of course, we've got the alchemist and later on we're going to be talking also about Isaac Newton, who many people would say is the most famous scientist who ever lived. Well, he was absolutely obsessed with gold as well, as we're going to talk about later. Early gold mining was mainly for places and these are still a source today. Gold-bearing quartz veins were exploited by the Egyptians in ancient Nubia, now Sudan, and then later by the Greeks and Romans across Europe. As demand grew in wealthy civilizations, gold was traded over great distances across Arabia, Europe, Southern Asia, and especially Africa. Trade assisted in establishing relatively peaceful interactions between peoples, but throughout history, gold has also been a prize, looted after conquest, and the quest for gold has driven many invasions and much exploration. And the reason I chose this quote is because I think it really puts across two very interesting takes. And one of them is not just that gold has always been valued, treasured and traded across all different civilizations, but also that gold was the metal of cooperation. 
Now, of course, in the modern history, we hear that gold was something that was a metal for war because, of course, if you go back to, let's say, World War II, all we saw was Hitler going around Europe and gathering up all of the gold. So people say, oh, more people have gone to war over gold uh, than anything else besides maybe religion. However, if you go back, if you go really far back in time, what you actually find is that gold was not seen this way. Gold was used for cooperation. And that's because gold was pretty evenly distributed across the world. Now, of course, man's lust for greed and power and money always led to war. But that wasn't necessarily because of the gold. The gold was just a prize, as was the women and the children and everything else that you could take when you invaded a country. You know, gold was just another element of that. However, if you go back far enough, and we're going to do that in today's episode because we're going to talk in a moment about the Code of Hammurabi, you'll find that gold was actually used to mediate between people. It was seen as something that helped cooperation. And the reason for that, of course, was because of gold's magical properties. As man saw it, it could be weighed, it could be measured. A gram of gold in Iran would be the same as a gram of gold in South America. And of course, there's many other properties too that makes gold so universal that it enables cultures that have completely different ways of life, completely different belief systems, completely different imaginations as to what the future should look like. It enables those people to cooperate successfully with one another. Because let's imagine that you're in Iran and you're making some fine silks, for example, and you want to trade with somebody in South America and they're giving you some special dyes of colors that you just couldn't make back home in Iran. You just don't know how to do it. Well, then you need something to cooperate between one another. Because if you don't have something to cooperate, something universal that is universally understood, loved, valued and accepted, well, then your only option would be to go for war, you know, to invade that country. However, if you all have something that you value and see as extremely symbolic and significant, well, then you can cooperate. It gives you that option. Now, this is one of the things that I talk about a lot at the moment in that the US, because it's on a fiat money standard, and that fiat monetary system that they created is now failing. What other options do they have if they want to enact hegemony or control? They can no longer do it through the paper currency that they print because people are turning away from it and going back, of course, to real money, which is gold. So therefore, the US only has two options. It either steps aside or it enacts war because there is nothing that the US has to cooperate. It refuses to go back to real money and to cooperate with countries. And that's what gold does. It enables people to cooperate. So this is where we're seeing in real time this whole story unfold. Now, another thing that was interesting in that past quote was talking about how gold has been a driver of human exploration. And that, of course, is because people want to enrich themselves. Nations want to become wealthier. So they wanted to explore new lands. And this pushed people to develop new technologies and to go across dangerous sea crossings to try and find new items, new things, new people to collaborate with. And, you know, it's funny because we were talking in the last show with Ian from White Lotus of Light. And in that episode, we were discussing the financial vipers of Venice, these Venetian banking families who essentially managed to control Europe through their use of uh, banking and eventually central banking. And one of the things that they actually did was they traveled to the Americas long before 
Christopher Columbus ever got there. But they had very little interest in making this known to anyone else. They wanted to keep that a secret to themselves. And the reason for that, of course, was because there was lots of gold and metals over there and they had the monopoly on gold back in Europe. So they didn't want that supply to all of a sudden be diluted down and have other people going across there and exploring because these were uncharted territories, at least for the Europeans. And if all of a sudden they got across there and there was all these people mining and prospecting for gold, it could reduce their power. And again, there's lots of parallels to today where you've got a country, which is America, who doesn't want the rest of the world to start using gold because if people go back to using real money and gold, they cannot enact their control. So there's so many parallels in history that come out when you start to understand what happened prior in terms of gold. But like I said, people were going across to the Americas as early as the 1300s. We've got detailed maps that can be evidenced to have been created prior to the 1300s. So that means that people were traveling across there far, far earlier than modern history tells us. And there's many reasons for that. Of course, many of these maps will have been held within families. And there's some people that say these maps were actually taken from the library at Alexandria that bent down. But before it bent down, somebody went in there and actually took a lot of this knowledge that then was lost in the fire. So it's an interesting history. We'll do an episode on that for sure. The Code of Hammurabi was one of the earliest and most complete written legal codes and was proclaimed by King Hammurabi, who reigned from 1792 to 1750 BC in the region we know as ancient Mesopotamia. Historians generally agree that this is the earliest verifiable example of human writing. The text or tablets, which were etched into clay, were written in a form of cuneiform, a logosyllabic script of wedge-shaped marks. In the code, King Hammurabi repeatedly refers to standardized weights of gold and silver as the only fair and true form of money, and the only thing that can be used in transactions to settle legal contracts. Human cooperation and creating an egalitarian society free from the worst vices of man and the lowest forms of character were intrinsic to the Hammurabi Code. And it is for this reason that gold was considered the only fair and true form of money. So this is really interesting because we're talking about a civilization that existed uh, 5,000 years ago back in ancient Babylon. And yet you see that what was the goal of the king back then, the monarch, was to try and create a society that was egalitarian, that was fair. Now, of course, I'm sure they had people who had higher positions of power and privilege than others. You know, a king has a position of authority. But it's very interesting that the king saw his own role as trying to create a society that was going to be fair for other people, that was going to be just, and that was going to remove some of the vices of man rather than add to it. And of course, the US Constitution sought to replicate that achievement itself. Thousands and thousands of years later, when it was written in Article 1, Section 10, that no state shall enter into any treaty, alliance or confederation, grant letters of mark or reprisal, coin money, emit bills of credit, or make anything but gold and silver coin a legal tender for payment of debts, or pass any bill of attainder ex post facto law or law impairing the obligation of contracts, or grant any title of nobility. So just like in the Code of Hammurabi, the founding fathers were trying to create a system over there in the US that was going to be more egalitarian. It was going to make a society that was going to be less prone to violence, less prone to vices. And to do that, you need a stable monetary system, of course, because if you don't have a stable monetary system, if you've got fiat currency, well, then it creates all of the problems that we've got today, where people 
have these pieces of paper with no intrinsic value, no significance, no meaning. And from that, they abstract certain values and the values are low forms of values. So people start to live on credit. They don't save for the future because why would you save? You know, if you've got inflation at 15, 20% and this sliding scale of monetary debasement, it could go up, it could go down, but it's always been debased continuously. Then why would you take that seriously? You know, you don't. And from that, you start to have generations of people who just don't value money and they don't value the work that goes into creating the money because the money itself is not a product of hard work. Whereas if you've got a gold standard, that gold can only be acquired from extreme amounts of effort and hard work. And therefore, when people acquire a piece of gold, they understand that this is something of high value, that it's took an awful lot of effort to get it. And of course, to get that piece of gold, you have to put in effort also. You have to do something, you have to produce something, you have to go out and maybe you grow some fruit and vegetables, maybe you're a farmer, maybe you chop down trees, maybe you're a mechanic in the modern day. Whatever you're doing, you have to do something of value to society to get that piece of gold, which in and of itself is extremely valuable. So within the system itself is an ingrained understanding of hard work and effort because the money itself represents that. Now, the money we've got today doesn't represent anything. It's a piece of paper. It's got some old dead people on it that most people don't even know, uh, some funny pictures, and it's easy come, easy go. You can go to the bank. You can take out a loan. You can get a lot of it. You can just take it out. Uh, you can buy things with it at some point, but sometimes that money goes to zero. So it's fragile, it's unstable. And of course, we know it doesn't take any effort to actually create it. And those that have the power to simply create it can create it for all kinds of things. They create it to enact wars, to create fake pandemics. You know, that's the problem when somebody's got the access to the money printer. They can use that money to do pretty much whatever they want. Of course, they can also then pick the winners and losers in society. So then you get a really corrupted society where the people who are most corrupt and most willing to enact the deeds of the evil banksters at the very top are going to get enriched the most. And that's why you see politicians like Macron going around with an 80k Patek Philippe watch or you see the um, politicians being able to give themselves massive contracts on the taxpayers expense we saw this in the UK we had a politician over there named Matt Hancock and when we had this big Covid scam the government were able to create these PPE contracts where they could give any company a contract to supposedly create equipment that would be supposedly protecting people from a supposed virus now of course this was just a racket and this politician in the UK Matt Hancock he gave massive massive contracts out to his family and friends uh, in companies that he either had a share of or that he was probably getting backhanders from. So this is somebody being enriched and rewarded for enacting a tyrannical agenda. So of course, once you've got people in power who are not decent and moral people, you've got corrupted people, and they then have the control of the monetary system. And in the case of the US, they've got control of the global monetary system. Well, then you can create global tyrannies or you can create global inequality or global impoverishment spiritually and socially. And that's exactly what we've got today. As we have seen the monetary system become further and further debased and further removed from what we're going to find out today is a divine metal, we've seen people move further and further away from truth and meaning. And then you've got this society now that is moving very, very close to actual um, Satanism or as 
our good friend Ian from White Lotus of Light called it Molochianism. You know, they worship Moloch. Now, you can frame that however you want, but if you just look around today and look at what we're seeing in the media, look at what we're seeing people do, how people are treating one another, how people are treating their children, particularly. You know, there's lots of people out there who are supporting some of these really dark agendas, unknowingly, of course, because they don't know the true evil that lies at the heart of this system. They are simply a product of that system. They're allowing evil to seep into their being without even realizing that it's evil. In fact, that's the greatest trick the devil ever played, and that's convincing the people that he doesn't exist. So people think that what they're doing is good and virtuous, which is another of the devil's tricks. You know, that you're doing something good when actually you're helping to propagate the evil that lies at the very heart of the system. But what my point here is, is that as the system has become more and more corrupted, so has society. And that will make more sense as we talk a little bit later about the ages of man, which was how the Greeks conceptualized this. Alchemy is the pursuit of turning base metals like lead or iron into gold. The idea of making gold from a base element fired the imagination of many men, including such notables as Sir Isaac Newton and King Charles II. Okay, well, I've got a lot I've got a lot that I can say on this one, particularly around Sir Isaac Newton, but I think I'll save that till we go into it a little bit further. Let's just continue in this vein, talking about alchemy, because this is a really important subject. It's one of those subjects that has been completely ridiculed and discredited by modern science and modern man. And listen, if we go back just 100 years, that was really the start of this idea that we live in this meaningless world and that man has all the power, there is no God, and science is the king. And it all came from the same families. It actually came from the royal societies. And that's really, really interesting. And we have to go down that in a future episode. We have to go down these avenues to better understand why we got to this place now of a meaningless and spiritless world. So we're going to do that. And alchemy was one of those things that they had to get rid of. They had to disparage. But isn't it interesting? King Charles II, Sir Isaac Newton. Remember, Sir Isaac Newton is the most well-known and respected scientist in human history, arguably because of what he um, taught us about gravity. So it's very interesting to find that he was actually a lifelong alchemist. And what many people don't know is he also became the chief of the Royal Mint in the UK. So we'll talk about that in a moment. But let's just go back to this idea of alchemy because for pretty much the entirety of man's history, we was trying to understand metals and also whether we could perform metallurgy to create gold out of some kind of base element or metal. And it was the pursuit of this that brought about modern day chemistry. You know, modern day chemistry is just the offshoot of alchemy. However, what happened was once chemistry got a foothold and we had the Royal Societies produced around them, then all of a sudden they started to deny that alchemy ever had any validity or credit. Now, of course, alchemy was not just about trying to transmute base metals into gold. It was a whole practice. And there was this thing called spiritual alchemy too. And this is something that Isaac Newton was practicing in his own life. And of course, all of that has been hidden from us. And Isaac Newton's own family hid the manuscripts and books that he wrote around alchemy because they were worried later on that this would disparage his name and his high esteem. And where did those books and manuscripts end up? Well, of course, they ended up in the Royal Archives. That's where they now rest. Okay, so let's move on. The principle of alchemy was established by the great Arab alchemist known as Geber. He theorized that all matter was made from four elements, fire, earth, water, and air. 
These elements combined to form mercury and sulfur, and depending on the proportions in which these two were mixed, all other metals could be made. Gerber's experiments produced a red compound, cinnabar, mercuric sulfide, and he confidently predicted the perfect proportion of mercury and sulfur would produce gold. From this, we begin to understand the alchemist's motivation, for he only had to hit the correct mix and he would become rich beyond his wildest imagination. So I guess what I'm trying to get across here is that the human association with metals goes back a very, very long way. It goes all the way back and it probably predates our modern history. There's probably things back there that we just simply have no access to, or at least we don't as the general public. I believe a lot of the does exist. I think some people have that history and they've probably got it stored away in their private libraries. It's just a case of who has access to it. And I think there is also a separate tradition of history that has access to this knowledge that isn't a part of this same cabal. And therefore, it means that we can enlighten ourselves with that knowledge. We can find out more about it. But it's very hidden and with good reason. So we have to do our own research on it. So like I said, this association with metals goes back a long way. And the way that the ancient people viewed metals were things that were full of mystery. You know, they were found, just think about it, they were found deep inside the earth. Uh, and therefore, they had come from this place where we found ourselves. And they were already there. They pre-existed down there and they got them out and there was all different types and they had all different characteristics and then of course you get to gold and that was seen as extremely unique for many of the reasons we always speak about not just its extreme rarity but also the fact it was one of the most malleable metals it was also the most beautiful metal it was so lustrous and whilst it can be easily mixed with other metals the more you heat it up the purer it becomes and of course it doesn't oxidize or corrode so all of these things just led to people becoming fascinated by this metal. It had so many qualities that many of the other metals simply didn't have. Nothing came close to it. So several ancient civilizations practiced the sciences of not just alchemy, but they often paired this with astrology too and related different metals to specific planets. Now we're going to come back to this um, theme of astrology again and again and again and that's because we cannot understand creation and our place in it without going back to astrological knowledge because really astrology was the basis of our understanding not just of ourselves but our place in creation and of course most of our psychological archetypes came from astrology most of our views of different gods came from astrology and also there's this pairing of the metals so astrology is concerned with the interpretation of the zodiac and the planets and their influence on ourselves, on human beings, on life here on Earth. So metals and astrology went hand in hand. And, you know, there's this idea as well of spiritual alchemy. So when we talk about alchemy, people only talk today about this now ridiculed idea that you can transmute base metals like lead into gold. However, that was not how people saw it. People saw the process of alchemy, which was attempting to do the seemingly impossible as a form of spiritual alchemy. Now, this is exactly what we learn today when we're talking about transforming ourselves from a fool. Uh, if you go back to the tarot, it starts with the fool and it follows through the fool's journey towards an enlightened being. Well, that's what spiritual alchemy was all about as well. It was about turning ourselves from lead into gold. You know, this is the process of enlightenment as spoken about in many different religions 
and in many different ways. But essentially, it's about turning ourselves into that most perfected version of ourselves. And the idea that within all of us is the capacity to achieve this form of, let's say, Christ consciousness, where we transmute ourselves into something beyond just man. We become like God because we are born with the capacity, with the divine spark within us to do that. So this is spiritual alchemy and this goes far beyond just the physical process of alchemy. However, of course, this is something that, again, he certainly don't want us talking about today because their goal is to actually do the opposite, is to turn us from gold, from divine beings into lead, to take away meaning from our lives, to see ourselves as nothing, meaningless objects even. So that is the process that we've been undergoing over the past few hundred years. But really, you could take this back thousands of years as well. So the alchemists believed that each element had a physical representation and also a philosophical meaning. Now that's really important because again, what has been taken from our lives? Well, that's philosophy and meaning. So if we look at lead, for example, lead was governed by the planet Saturn. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Because we see all of this Saturnian symbolism all across planet Earth right now. We see the cube, the black cube that they use to symbolize Saturn. We see that all over the place. There's a sacred black cube that Muslims pilgrimage to in Mecca. They've also even placed now a black cube at ground zero where the World Trade Center Twin Towers collapsed. Well, in its footprint, they put a big black cube. Now, of course, the religion that is most associated with Saturn worship is actually Judaism. In Judaism, the worship of Saturn is heavily encoded within the religion. Now, if you look at the North Pole of Saturn, what do you find? You find the polygon shape. On the North Pole of Saturn, there is a giant polygon. And from the polygon, you can make the cube. And of course, in the center of the Star of David, you have that same shape, the polygon that represents the cube and represents Saturn. Saturn has some really dark connotations and is related to death. It can also be related to transformation. And there's also this kind of child sacrifice and this child harm part of it, which again goes back to other deities too, like Moloch. Uh, and like I said, going back to alchemy, lead is governed by the planet Saturn, which makes sense because lead in itself has direct relationships with death. It's a toxic metal, it represents impurity, and it was one of the earliest metals that was known to man. So it was known to be widely used by the Romans, the Egyptians, the Greek, the Chinese. Now, gold, on the other hand, which is on the complete opposite end of that spectrum, doesn't represent a planet at all. It represents the celestial body that is the sun. And the sun itself represents, of course, God and particularly Jesus Christ, which we're going to get to later in the episode. But as we know, gold was used for offerings for many different gods and for ceremonial purposes across the world. So it was always seen as a symbol of the divine and as something that was a symbol also of wealth, prosperity, um, authority, enlightenment, and that's because of its purity, of course. It was pure, so if you're going to offer something to a god, you want to find the most valuable and pure thing you can, and all of human beings' endeavors on earth settled upon gold. There was never anything 
that became more valued and prized than gold. Similarly, gold was always used for things like healing and in medicine. So again, you can understand why it was used by alchemists, but also by naturopaths, homeopaths, people working with vibrations and frequencies. And of course, this makes complete sense because gold is one of the most conductive metals. And we live in an electric universe. Everything that we do has a rhythm and a frequency. Your heart is based around electric frequencies. When you think, you send out electric frequencies. And that is why all of the temples and shrines, and of course, if you go to a church here in the West, what you'll find is these massive domes and you'll see gold leaf absolutely everywhere. Gold was everywhere. Well, that's because gold could resonate at a very, very beautiful, high and divine frequency. That is why we put them in temples. That's because when we had all of these people there praying together, thinking about God, singing, putting out this really high vibration, this really high frequency, well, then, of course, you want things like gold in there because gold is the most conductive metal there is. So it was used for that reason in symbolic ceremonies. It was used in worship. It was used in temples for all of those reasons. Now, going back to Isaac Newton just for a second, like I said, we know Isaac Newton as somebody who um, discovered gravity. That's what he's famous for. He discovered gravity. And today, you could argue that the discovery of gravity is actually used as evidenced by people who are purely in the science realm and do not see the world as anything but a aberration, something that just happened spontaneously. It evolved over time. It had no divine hand at all. They would use gravity to say, well, look, you know, that disproved the biblical account of creation. So therefore, it disproved that God exists, at least here in the West. However, what those people don't tell you is that Isaac Newton was first and foremost a lifelong alchemist. Secondly, he was a spiritual alchemist also. And thirdly, he was also a lifelong theologian and believer in creation and God. So isn't that funny? They've almost turned the story of Isaac Newton from gold to lead. They've actually transmuted backwards from gold to lead because now we see Isaac Newton as representative of a meaningless world, of a meaningless universe. And whilst he did pursue the transmutation of base metals into gold for pretty much his entire adult life, yes, he did practice physical alchemy. What he actually took away from that process was actually his understanding, a profound understanding of the divine. So he was really practicing a spiritual alchemy. And I guess maybe the goal of Newton was to try and achieve this to see if it was possible to turn base metals into gold. And maybe that would have been used as evidence by Isaac Newton that actually there was no God because man could achieve this feat. Man could do something that was seemingly impossible. And therefore, maybe there was no God. And that's because gold was seen as representative of God, uh, which is going to be something we discuss at length in part two. So I'm thinking maybe for Isaac Newton, that's what it represented. And because he couldn't achieve that feat, despite his great intellect, of course, he realized that there truly was a divine nature to creation and that this metal, gold, was very symbolic of that. So his pursuit of alchemy was really a form of spiritual alchemy and it brought him closer to the divine and his own godly nature. Now, spiritual alchemy is something that has been practiced throughout history and there were actually set groups that came about that understood alchemy purely as spiritual alchemy. So for example, the Rosicrucians, they saw alchemy not so much as something that was concerned with making gold out of base materials. It was actually concerned with making a man of lead into a man of gold. 
And in Rosicrucian Alchemy, it says the adept could move up and down the ladder of creation from terrestrial matter through the heavens and even to the angels and God. But like I said, a lot of this has been scrubbed from history, particularly in terms of Isaac Newton and his own practice of alchemy. And I don't think that was to hide the fact that Isaac Newton was practicing this art of alchemy, trying to transmute lead into gold. I don't think that's what it was about. I think it was to scrub the meaning of what he was doing and his understanding of God. Because like I said, the elites used Isaac Newton and his theory of gravity as evidence that we don't live in a meaningful planet and that there is no God. That's what they used him as. So they had to scrub from his history his own observances that there is a God and that we do live in creation. And in Isaac Newton's book, Principia, he himself wrote, the most beautiful system of the sun, planets and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as Lord over all. And on account of his dominion, he is wont to be called Lord God, Panto Crator, or Universal Ruler. He went on to say, Since every particle of space is always and every indivisible moment of duration everywhere, certainly the maker and lord of all things cannot never and nowhere be. God is the same God, always and everywhere. He is omnipresent, not virtually only, but also substantially. For virtue cannot subsist without substance. It is also allowed by all that the supreme God exists necessarily, and by the same necessity he exists always and everywhere. And thus, much concerning God, to discourse of whom from the appearance of things does certainly belong to natural philosophy. Okay, so now we're getting somewhere. You know, it's very clear when you read Newton's writing that he was extremely influenced by his attempts to transmute base metals into gold. And when he describes God there, he describes God as something that is unchanging. He says that God is the same God always and everywhere. Now that is exactly the properties of gold also. So you can start to see now how we're getting to this conceptualization that there's parallels between God and gold and gold itself is symbolic as God. Gold does not change wherever you go. It is inextinguishable. Anywhere on planet Earth, one gram of gold is still one gram of gold. It doesn't change. It doesn't corrode. It doesn't corrupt. It's pure. So let's really start to now go deep into this connection between God and gold. We'll really start to flesh it out as we get towards part two of today's episode. Of all Earth's commodities, gold was chosen from among Earth's minerals to represent God's own glory. For many, its unique qualities and location on planet Earth are no accident. So of course, if like Isaac Newton, you believed that where we are and what we are seeing here is a part of creation, that we are God's creation and that everything around us is God's creation, then it stands to reason that God would have designated something here on planet Earth, some kind of natural element that would be the basis for a supreme form of money. Something out there would exist that worked as a supreme form of money, a mechanism of exchange that facilitates cooperation between a diverse group of people with a diverse range of skills, professions and ambitions. And of course, like I've already highlighted in today's episode, if you go back all the way to the code of Hammurabi, we find that that metal was gold. So humans found that metal, they found God's metal, they found what God intended to be used as money. And of course, even today, you'll hear it said 
that gold is God's money, meaning it was provided by God to be money. And in part two, we're going to talk a lot about how God sent his only son and Jesus represented the actual physical sun that we can see in the sky and the sun is also represented through gold. Right, I think we're going to leave it there for part one everyone. I hope you enjoyed part one of this episode on gold, the divine metal. In part two we're going to be going very deep into astrotheology and starting to make those connections between what the Bible tells us about Jesus the sun and also the metal gold. Also going to be considering how much older religions like Hinduism for example saw gold and how they conceptualized it as being a divine metal. Similarly we're going to go back to ancient Greece and we're going to look at the ages of man that goes all the way from gold to where we are today which is the age of iron. Then towards the end of the show we're going to consider how we should conceptualize money here today and we're going to talk about the need to restore money back to its rightful place which is connected to the divine and connected to the spiritual and we're going to discuss this in light of recent developments like cryptocurrencies and I'm going to give my take on that as well. So if you'd like to listen to part two please head over to parallelmike.com. Have a good one and I will see you in the next one.